The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Remember the mall? This isn't actually a shot of Lime Ridge Mall. I've spent a lot of time in my life at the mall. I, I don't mind saying now though, I don't feel the same way uh, about the mall that I did when I was younger. Um, I spent a lot of time there as a, as a young person because the mall made all kinds of promises to me, like of things that I thought that I needed at the time. Like the mall was the place where I could go and I could find all the action figures that I was looking for and all of the fast food that I wanted to eat and all of the cool clothes that I wanted to buy. My friends were often there. There used to be a movie theater at Lime Ridge. I don't know if any of you guys remember that. How many of you remember when there was a, a theater at Lime Ridge Mall? Do you remember that? So I spent a ton of time there at, at Lime Ridge Mall, but my relationship with the mall changed when I was about 15 years old because something bad, something bad happened. I was, actually, I was actually busted by security because I was with my little brothers who were caught shoplifting G.I. Joe figures and it was humiliating and I ended up being banned from Lime Ridge Mall for a year. So I shouldn't laugh, I shouldn't smile. So kids, don't do that. Don't follow Pastor Mike's example. And that changed how I relate to Lime Ridge Mall. And uh, even now when I'm back at Lime Ridge I, and I see the advertising and the, the banners and the signs and the models and all the products they're trying to sell me, I still sort of feel not just like I'm being watched, I actually feel like I'm being judged. And I realize that um, the, the way that I relate to the mall in, at this point in my life is the same as the way a lot of people relate to a church space. Right? The way that I relate to the mall at this point in my life is the way that many people relate to a church because both of them preach a message to you. Both of them make us promises. Both of them are trying to, to shape us. Both of them are places of worship. They're places of worship, truly. Over the last while, I've been spending a lot of time reading the work of a Canadian theologian. His name is Jamie Smith. Here's what he has to say about the mall. He says, the mall isn't a neutral or a benign space. It is religious in the sense that they are trying to shape you with the story that proclaims stuff will make you happy. There are icons of the good life that line the corridors. There are colors for the seasons as the church has colors for its seasons. Nobody thinks their way into consumerism. Rather, the liturgies of the mall and market co-opt our love by capturing our imagination. And so in that way, it's, it's almost like the mall has its own gospel message, you know, like it makes its own promises. And so whereas in, in Romans 12, which we heard read a minute ago, Paul wants us to know, guys, worship God, uh, offer him yourselves, be transformed by him. This is what worship looks like. The mall has a different view of what worship is, and it, tell, it preaches something else. In fact, I think you could take... Romans 12 and rewrite it from the vantage point of the mall and you could say therefore shoppers since you are ugly and poor and incomplete present yourself at the mall this is how consumers worship don't be content but judge and compare yourself be transformed by the degradation of your mind and the depletion of your finances so that you'll finally look like someone who is important and beautiful and famous. So I really believe that the mall is shaping us, it's forming us, like a lot of the practices and a lot of the spaces that we occupy in our lives. And, and the mall isn't certainly not the only one, but uh, we could think of our entertainment, 
Our, our social media choices are forming us. The workplace is forming us and your neighborhoods and, and your peer group, your friends, your friendship group. Those people are, all of these things are forming us. And out of all of the spaces that we occupy in our lives, the one that God has asked us to guard as holy and sort of set apart is the gathered worship event of the church. So I don't know what your church background is, but many of you would know I grew up going to a Roman Catholic church and, and in fact, a Roman Catholic school. When you do, church is a class, all right? It's a class, and we went to church all the time, plus all the times that my mom would drag us out on Sundays. And I became so familiar with the liturgy that I used to be able to say the words along with the priest. My mom didn't like that. Although I did become an altar boy, fun fact, I was an altar boy, and I was the guy who got to ring the little chimes during Mass when the priest would hold up the bread and he would say, do this in memory of me. Do you guys know that part? I definitely was the guy who got to ring the chime. But I also remember being in the pew, you know, sort of participating in what was going on, whether it was with my family or with my, my teacher. And like, I used to get whacked in the side of the head in church. And they would say things like, be quiet. This is God's house. No talking. Like, this isn't fun time. Whatever you need to say, save it until we're done. It seems to me now there's a theology there, right? As a kid, I learned that worship is my, my duty. It's my obligation. It's, my, it's a sacrifice that I offer where I dress up and I arrive and I stand up and I sit down and I, uh, I keep quiet and I take communion. And if I suffer through it, I get to go home and God is pleased with me. And I don't know if many of you can relate to that uh, experience, but I think that we would agree that that's not how worship is supposed to be, right? But I think that there's another view of worship that we have absorbed in our culture too. Because in, and in this view, we're, we're not the performers. In this one, we are the audience. We're the spectators. And in this view, worship is what happens when someone at the front of a room says something or does something that makes us feel close to God. And in this view, worship is what happens when, when we are not distracted by our real lives and we're not distracted by our kids or by a singer who sings off key or who messes up the lyrics or maybe there's a preacher who goes too long. And if those things are removed, if those distractions are gone, then that is good worship. And just so you know, there's a theology in that view as well, right? Because on the one hand, one tradition says that worship is a duty that you perform. And, and that's what I knew as a kid. And we would, again, we would agree that that's wrong. But this other tradition makes worship into a product. It's like a, a, it's an experience. It's a commodity. It's something that we can package and we can offer to our guests. And we would agree legalism is a problem. But I hope today we can also acknowledge that consumerism is a problem that's just as serious as well. Amen? Now, we're beginning this morning a series in the liturgy. What we're wrestling with is what we're doing here together when the church goes to church. What is this for? Why do we do this? That's what we're asking today. Now, next week when, we're, when we gather, the focus is going to be on the role of the word in word and table. And so what is the role of teaching in our worship gathering? And two weeks from now, when we get together, our focus is going to be on the table in word and table. And what is the role of communion? in our worship gathering. I'll also draw your attention to the phone number that's at the bottom of the screen there. Just as always, if we, as we go, you have questions that come up, 
do feel free to text those in and at the end of the message or at the end of the service today we'll have some time to discuss. Um, but I want, to dis- I want to begin by asking what even is a liturgy? Because it's probably not a, a word that you, gr- you grew up using if you, are, if you were part of most evangelical churches. Liturgy is an old, it's just an old Greek word that means the work of the people. Okay, liturgy is what happens when people craft the worship event. And so for me as a Catholic kid, liturgy was the smells and bells. There were prayers that we all said together at the same time every week. The Apostles' Creed, we sang the hymns, there was the incense, there was a 10-minute sermonette, and then we took communion and we were out in 45 minutes, in and out in 45 minutes, on the dot, every time. And that was our liturgy. Way at the other end of the spectrum, you might have a, a liturgy where a worship leader stands up, says a prayer, and welcomes you, and there's maybe a, a couple of minutes of greeting and, and saying, you know, shaking hands with your neighbor. From there, there might be 20, 25 minutes of music where, there's, where we begin really big and then we kind of quiet down and get a little more emotional as we get closer to the sermon. I used to be that guy. That used to be my, my job in churches. Um, and then you, you move from there into about a 45-minute sermon, a little bit more music at the end, and then you go home. Now, just so you know, that's a liturgy too. Okay, that's also a liturgy. Both of these worship liturgies are shaped by certain beliefs and certain goals and certain values, okay? It's not like one of these is liturgical and the other one is not. So it's just really important here that we understand whether you're coming from sort of a high church like Anglican or Roman Catholic background or you're coming from sort of a low church, non-denominational, maybe Baptistic or, or free church background, both have a liturgy. Now we need to ask, what's happening in worship? All right, what happens in worship? This really is, from, from Romans 12, 1 and 2, this really is the why. This is the why we gather. And, and so there's four things that I think happen that are really important when we get together for worship. The first one is that worship retells the story of God's mercy. Okay, listen to this in Romans 12, 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God... In view of the mercies of God. And that may, that word at the beginning of the verse, therefore, means that everything after it, it only makes sense because of what came before. So what came before this? What came before Romans 12.1? Well, there was 11 chapters of God's mercies. Because Romans, if you know, if you've read it recently, you remember that Romans is where Paul explains the gospel. You know, that, that he explains how a holy God can forgive sin. And that's his mercy. And and he explains that we are saved by grace through faith, not by our works. And that's God's mercy. And he explains that that sin doesn't control us anymore if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And and again, that's God's mercy. And Paul tells us that he sometimes fails. And even though he fails and he does the things that he doesn't want to do, God is still with him. And that's God's mercy. And on and on and on. These are the mercies of God that fill the book of Romans. And Paul says, in view of these things, and then he's going to go on and tell us to worship. And so what's happening in worship is we are putting these these mercies on display. We worship because this stuff happened. Every time we gather for worship, we are declaring the mercies of God and saying, the only reason we can do this thing is because of what God has done. See? See his mercies? And that's a really beautiful thing. And that's why we worship. The, one, the first thing is because it retells the story of God's mercy. 
Second thing that I think happens when we worship is we declare allegiance to God. We declare our allegiance. Because Paul goes on in, in this passage and he says, I want you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your true worship. Okay? Yeah, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, what kind of, what, what are we even talking about here? So this language of sacrifice is rooted in the old covenant approach to worship, where you would show up at the temple and you had an animal with you. And the priest would take it, would, would kill it humanely and would cook it up and everybody would eat it and they would like share a barbecue. And that's what worship looked like. And the costlier the sacrifice, the better the worship. And Paul's saying in this verse, now you're going to present your body as a living sacrifice. God doesn't want your animal now. Now God wants you. He wants all of you. And that's what happens in worship. We're saying all that I am is yours. All of my preferences and all of my dreams and, and my ambitions, all of that belongs to you. I am yours. So again, in worship, we declare our allegiance to God. A third important thing that I think happens in, in worship, according to Romans 12 here, is that we are changed. We are actually transformed by worship. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This, this is actually super, super important. Because I don't know if you realize this or not, but at every minute of your life, you are being formed. Okay? You're being formed either as somebody who is uh, more and more a, a good fit for this world, or you're being transformed into somebody who is a better fit for the next. And that happens in all kinds of ways and through a whole, kind, a whole bunch of choices that you make every day. How, who you hang out with, how you spend your time, what you read, what you watch, what you put in your body, uh, all the things. And so the decision that we are making in these practices the decision is, am I going to be conformed to this world or am I going to be transformed for the next? That's the choice that every worshiper has to make. And, and so I really agree with uh, Jamie Smith who says that worship works from the top down. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. It isn't just something we do. It's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because, listen to this, worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. I just think that's so important. Okay, worship is our choice to put ourselves in the place and in the posture where we will be transformed into those who are less and less at home in this world and more and more prepared and better suited for God's kingdom. Okay, so in worship, we are being transformed. And the fourth thing I think that's really important for us to catch, it's because as we do, the curse is rolled back. Okay, the curse is actually rolled back in worship. And I know that that's a big claim, but listen to it. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Okay, as we worship, you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind and so that we're able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now, that's a really big deal if you've read the book of Romans because if you have, you know that when we sinned, our foolish minds were darkened and we became unable on our own to discern God's will. 
right? That's called the curse. And so when Paul's saying that, um, that, that now in worship, we're being transformed bit by bit, all of a sudden, the curse is being rolled back. We can discern God's will now. Now it's not a mystery the way that it used to be, because as we worship, God's will lands on us. We're able to discern that it is good and pleasing and perfect. And that's a really big deal, okay? So these four things that happen in worship, this is, this is the why of our gathering. We gather like this because each of us has this deep need to retell the mercies of God. We have this need to, to declare that we're his, We have this need to be formed and transformed for his kingdom. And we have this need to have the effects of the curse rolled back so that we can know God's will. That's the why of worship, okay? Now, how does that translate to Sundays? Like, what should actually happen? If that's what worship is for, what kind of a worship event is going to make that happen? Well, it's interesting, you know, the early church from their very first days, they started gathering and you see in their gatherings the elements that they made a priority of that would really allow Romans 12 to happen in their lives. In Acts 2, we read what happened when the church got together. There was teaching, there was fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. In their context, there were signs and wonders happening. They were meeting together, breaking bread house to house and praising God. And, and we could spend a lot of time in this passage, and, and it'll come up in, 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 a little bit later, but this is confirmed for us elsewhere in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, he writes to his, little, his young protege, Timothy, who's a church planter in a city called Ephesus. And he says, until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. So teaching, teaching is a normal part of the gathered life of the church. Another part that's normal is communion. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul has been kind of scolding the Corinthians because they have done such a poor job of communion when they get together. And he says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. So communion, it's not an if, it's a when. You should, communion is a, seems to be a normal part of the gathered life of the church. And a third thing that I think is normal is fellowship and encouragement. Because the author to the Hebrews says, don't neglect this gathering together, but encourage each other daily. Like Consider one another in order to provoke one another to love and good works. So this, I, this encouragement, this fellowship, this kind of like community thing, that is a normal part of the gathered life of the church. And like we could go on with, with other ones, but those really, I hope we see that those are normal parts of the liturgy. And for us as benediction, there is, it's very unlikely that there's going to be a time when things like prayer and teaching or communion or fellowship are not going to be part of our liturgy. That's just probably not going to happen. In fact, if you've been with us for a long time, if we go all the way back to the beginning, when we first started meeting and praying about what this thing was going to look like and what should be in our liturgy, we came up with a shape. I don't know if you remember that, but we, we talked about how worship begins with a call to worship. And then we're slowly sort of disoriented in that space and deprogrammed from the worldly liturgies and the worldly narratives that we hear. We move up into the posture of, of hearing from God in his word. We gather with him. We meet him at his table. We're sort of reoriented to the gospel, right? We're reoriented to the good news. And then Jesus, Jesus sends us out 
with like a good word, with a benediction, with a commission to, to go out into the world. That's, that's what we came up with when we, when we started this. And by sharing these practices week uh, by week, by month, and by year, we are being transformed together. But then we asked, we started to do a bit of work and, and research, and we started talking about, well, what's the style that's, that's appropriate for this thing? Like, what kind of tradition should we use? Like, for example, would it be wrong to bring, like, the smoke machine and the mood lighting to the Harp Center for our word and table gatherings? My answer to that is no, it would not be wrong. It's just that as we did our research, we found that the overwhelming majority of Hamiltonians, like more than 75%, still identify with, like, the, the high church liturgical background. And that, that means something. And so it wouldn't be wrong to do like the smoke machine and the mood lighting. It's just that there's no evidence that that will help us or them uh, to worship. Now, an important question that I think comes up here. Are we saying that we will never change our liturgy? And I would want to say, not at all. We're not saying that at all. In fact, there is tons of creativity. I hunger for other people to come along and offer their creativity to, the, to our liturgy and, and to try new things. In fact, in a few minutes, we're going we're gonna to create space in our liturgy for a discussion. We're going to put you into breakout rooms so that you can discuss a couple of questions that, that I've put together. But also, just so you know, we have a job post up right now where we're actually hiring a worship director and we're just trusting the Lord to bring along a person who can, in a very focused way, bring their own creativity and inspiration and beauty and excellence to our Sunday gathering, whether we're talking about online or in person for word and table. Now I want to close by asking, what is it that we actually expect of this thing? There are two mistakes that I think it's really important for us to avoid in worship as we, as we get this conversation about liturgy started. See, if you come away from Sunday feeling really proud of yourself and kind of self-righteous because you did your duty, you did what's expected, and you're glad that's over, you know, that's not worship. That has not been acceptable worship. But if you go away from Sunday morning feeling like you've been entertained, you've been impressed and wowed by the production, that's not better. Amen? Like, that's actually not better. And that's not what this thing is for. This thing is about being re reprogrammed, about being reoriented to the gospel of Jesus as a community as we offer God all that we are. So listen to this by, by uh, Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson says, if we are a nation of consumers, obviously the quickest and most effective way to get them into our congregations is to identify what they want and offer it to them. Satisfy their fantasies, promise them the moon, recast the gospel in consumer terms, entertainment, satisfaction, excitement, adventure, problem solving, whatever. But this is not the way in which we become less and Jesus becomes more. This is not the way in which our sacrificed lives become available to others in justice and service. So, so I'm trying to get us started in this series by challenging our expectations. By challenging our expectations and challenging our assumptions. Okay, Let's not underestimate how much we've been shaped by the workplace and the legalism of the workplace. And so please don't join us for worship on Sundays thinking that it's your religious duty, like God is taking attendance, all right? Like, God doesn't love you more if you attend every single week 
And he doesn't love you less if you miss a word and table every once in a while. Okay? Just to be clear. It's not like we're in trouble if we miss. It's that this is a need that we have. Right? We don't, we don't want to just go to church. We actually have a need to gather as the church and be the church for one another. And it's just something that we can't afford to skip. Okay? We can't afford to skip it. At the same time, please don't come to worship in order to consume or to be entertained. Because I promise you, you will be disappointed. Okay? I'm sorry, you, but you will be disappointed because things don't go as planned. And the kids get restless sometimes. And the sermon sometimes goes long. And sometimes somebody in the band messes up the words of a song. And, and sometimes the kids like fart during a prayer. And stuff like that happens. That's a normal part of the gathered life of the community. That doesn't make it bad worship. Your distractions don't make it bad worship. Because here's the good news. God meets us in worship, not because you were undistracted. Not because the mood was, was good and the lighting was just right. He's not waiting, God is not waiting for you to offer him perfect worship. Okay? God has already done everything that needed to happen. He has already made you holy. He has already made you acceptable. And so we can't actually offer on our own perfect worship. He has already taken care of that. What we do is we show up to worship and to offer him ourselves. To show up and say, God, you are worthy. You deserve all of me. You deserve all that I am, all that I have. So God, I am here with my brothers and sisters here. Would you please, would you transform us and help us to be the church? And I'm just saying, as we get this conversation started this week, that is why the church goes to church. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening.